Amen. Good morning. Uh, so we're going to take a break from talking about sexual temptation to other areas that young men get ensnared in. And so we're going to handle uh, pitfalls in two massive areas in our lives. And so in chapter 6 of Proverbs, um, there are four sections, and they escalate in depravity. And so we're going to deal with the first two this morning and the next two next week. Uh, but these first two are common temptations, not just for young men, uh, old men, uh, women of all ages. It is the promise of easy gain and the promise of an easy life. So uh, in brief terms, speculation and sluggardness. Um, what a great word for a miserable condition. So speculation is the desire for high gain in, in seeking high-risk situations to get that. So we, we know this in, in, um, in investment terms, but basically I think I can get a high reward by getting involved in risky situations. That's um, speculation, and then sluggardness will get there later. But both of these sections deal with self-inflicted harm through short-sighted choices. Self-inflicted harm through short-sighted choices. And in each, you pay a higher price tomorrow for today's pleasure or today's gain. And in each, you think you'll be more free, but you end up becoming a slave. Each one of them promises greater freedom because you have control to indulge in your desires and your pleasures as much as you possibly can, but each of them makes you a slave. And so we're going to beginning the, be beginning the book of 2 Peter on Wednesday. And so uh, this verse, 2 Peter 2.19, is going to kind of be the uh, rubric for our text today. 2 Peter 2.19 says this. They, um, so context of 2 Peter, speaking of false teachers. False teachers, false gospels always promise comfort now. Always promise all of your benefit now, your riches now. And here's what Peter says. They promise them freedom, but they themselves, the false teachers, are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. That's what we're dealing with this morning. Being overcome by two very practical situations, how we handle our money and how we handle our time. And handling them in a way that is self-centered and short-sighted, turns to slavery. Um, and that's what, but this is what our society is built on, right? Enjoy everything today, figure it out tomorrow. The promise of immediate gain um, and not worrying about future problems. So if the purpose of Proverbs is to apply wisdom in the fear of the Lord, then the ethic of Proverbs is to avoid the promise of short-term gratification in favor of long-term peace. The ethic of Proverbs is avoid the promise of short-term gratification in favor of long-term peace. It's everything we're seeing in this book, living a long life with the Lord, at peace with the Lord and, and with men. And almost always in contrast to that is, let me get as much for, I can, for myself as I can right now. But that is a very real temptation in our flesh. So let's dive in. Proverbs chapter 6 uh, verses 1 through 11. My son, if you have put up security for a neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth and caught in, in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give, no, uh, give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of a hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. You are great and awesome, mighty and holy. You are the source of all wisdom and knowledge. Your Son taking on flesh is wisdom incarnate. He is the fullness of all things. May we look to you, O Father. May we look to Christ, our brother, and live in wise ways. May we be people of strong doctrinal conviction and consistent godly living. May our practice mirror our beliefs. May we live in a way where we are good stewards of everything you have given us. All of our treasures, all of our talents, all of our time. May we be found as good and faithful servants and not slaves to our own desires. And may in everything that we do be a witness to the glory of our King. And may Christ be exalted in this church and in our lives and across this entire globe. It is in his name we pray. Amen. So we must explain first what's going on in this, this first section. This might be a little foreign to us. So speaking of surety and speaking of pledges. Um, so this is a culture that runs on surety. Surety. S-U-R-E-T-Y. And so it's the uh, process, so with, without, without banks and lending institutions and interest and all this, um, it's the process of putting something of value or yourself as a, a guarantee of a loan. And so you would do that for yourself. Uh, there's instances of putting up homes, putting up cattle, putting up beds and pots and pans. If I don't pay this, then you can come and take this. Collateral. Um, but there's also this practice of doing it on behalf of someone else. If you've got a friend who's poor or um, someone who doesn't have the means to take out the loan that they want to take out, then they need someone to give surety, to give a pledge on their behalf. Um, but here's the rub. If they don't pay, now you are responsible. And so the warning in this first section is against being naive in business dealings, um, but also against seeking easy money. Because if you put up surety for someone else, now they owe you. And so there's the promise of high gain or, or the, the, the return on investment is, is high when you give surety. So for a young man, this seems kind of appealing. Oh, maybe I can make a quick buck. I'll put myself or something of mine up in place of someone else and they'll owe me big time. And so the father is speaking to the son here uh, against speculation, against these, these risky dealings. So when we get into verse 1, uh, these are two parallel lines. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given pledge for a stranger. Security and, and pledge are, are, are synonymous here. This is to guarantee a debt. Um, what's translated pledge here in the Hebrew is literally striking palms with a stranger. Now, we don't know what that looked like. We don't know if it was a handshake or a, a high five or what, whatever it was, but there's this, this handshake deal, this agreement that, that goes on. I for you, my, um, my neighbor. So the other parallel is helpful here. Neighbor and stranger, context is key. This is not neighbor, uh, neighbor how we saw it earlier, but this is neighbor like, like fellow man, uh, more the general sense that we would use today, a stranger. You have made a handshake deal with someone um, to make a guarantee on their behalf for something that they have to pay. Um, and so this is before paper contracts, and this is at a time where you know, your, your word meant everything, and if you made a verbal agreement, then you took that to the bank. There's a few examples of this. Proverbs 11.15 is, is helpful at looking at this. 11.15 says, Whoever puts up security for a stranger will surely suffer harm, but he who hates striking hands, there's that picture again, in pledge, is secure. Uh, also Proverbs 22, verse 26 and 27, same kind of situation. Uh, where the writer says, Be not one of those who give pledges, who put up security for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should your bed be taken from under you? You get the, the, the picture here. That's a bad deal to guarantee the bed on which you sleep in, in place of, of some debt. And so this is what the father's trying to save the son from. So here's kind of the uh, situation. 
And so he goes on, verse 2, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth. So again, two parallels, snared and caught, mouth and mouth. Let's deal with ensnared. Here, there is a word picture here. This first section is full of hunting imagery, and this is the first one. If you are ensnared. So um, a snare hides a trap. At first, it seems harmless because there's a little bit of bait there. Um, and hunters do this to catch animals. They, they, they bring them in with um, a piece of meat or a, a piece of hide or something they want to eat, and, they're, in, and they're, they're sniffing around. And this is, if it looks too good to be true, it probably is. And so they stick their little heads in there to eat, and the snare catches them around the neck. But the thing about the snare is, once you get caught in it, the more you struggle, the tighter it gets. And the more you try to wiggle your way out of it, the more you bring yourself to certain death. And so the father's saying, if you get into foolish debt, it's going to make you pray. P-R-E-Y. It should make you P-R-A-Y, but it's going to make you P-R-E-Y. It will, it will make you susceptible to being caught, to being trapped. Uh, Proverbs 22, 7 uses it like this. The borrower becomes a slave to the lender. And so when you get yourself into gross debt, when you put yourself as a pledge, not just for yourself, but you put yourself in, in pledge for someone else, you become a slave on someone else's behalf. This is foolish. Son, don't do it. But because I know you, he says, if you put up security for a neighbor, I know you're going to do this at some point. Young men, it just comes with the territory. We've got to have at least one or two really boneheaded financial decisions that, that we make so that we learn. And the father's saying, I know you're going to do this, but learn. Don't get caught. Don't get ensnared by the words of your mouth. Essentially, be careful what you agree to. How many times have our mouths got us into trouble? Some of us more than others. How many times have you made a verbal agreement? How many times have you agreed to do something and you regret it? There's an old or a modern proverb that says, don't let your mouth write checks that your butt can't cash. Here's, here's the, the, the idea here. Our mouths get us into trouble. And so be careful what you agree to. So there's a modern equivalent to this. So before I got called to ministry here, um, I worked at a law firm for eight years. And in the law firm, um, we specialized in bankruptcy and foreclosure. In that time, I had literally seen thousands of bankruptcies and hundreds of foreclosures. And what I learned about people is that most people have no idea how credit cards work. They have no idea how mortgages work. They have no idea how car loans work, how amortization schedules work. Um, all they care is, I want to buy that shiny new thing and can I afford the payments? That's all they care about. No one ever asks, what are the terms? What, what's, what's the interest? When most people, when we had to, so in order to do a bankruptcy, we had to explain to people, here's why you owe $500,000 on a house that's worth $200,000. Here's why on a house that you buy for $500,000, you end up paying $900,000 because of interest, because you got a sucker deal. And this happened again and again and again. We live in a society that, that, that wants more and wants to live beyond its means. In our culture, the average household is it has $155,000 in consumer debt. Combination of um, credit cards, uh, student loans, homes, cars, the average is 155,000. People will sign their name to anything, and the worst of all is co-signing. So co-signing is exactly what's being talked about here, meaning you, someone else can't afford to pay. Here's a little key. If they can't afford to pay on their own, they shouldn't buy it. But they can't afford to pay on, your own, on their own, and so you sign uh, for them. So that means when they don't pay, the bank comes after you. The worst case I saw of this was the, the first bankruptcy that we did, or that I, that, I, that I witnessed. A grandmother came in, and she had the best of intentions and the worst of outcomes. She co-signs for three brand new vehicles for three sweet grandchildren who all default on the loan. And now the grandmother is on the hook for three brand new cars that she has never driven. Her savings are wiped out, and she ends up having to file bankruptcy and include these, these vehicles. 
In a co-signing relationship, you're on the hook and they're, still, and they're on the hook. So the grandchildren's still responsible, but she had to file bankruptcy for these three vehicles which she co-signs for. Never do that. Um, I joke often that in, in, in our house, we grew up, my dad was Dave Ramsey before there was Dave Ramsey. Um, he gave us really good counsel. My dad said, I, I, I love you, but I'm not co-signing for nothing for you. I will, I will loan you the money. I'd rather give you the money than for me to co-sign you. This is just free financial advice. And this was great because when I got to college, I saw my friends get three, four, five, six, seven, some had eight or nine credit cards that they all maxed out and spent years paying off. It was great. They partied all the way through, through, through college. I'm thankful for a dad who gave me counsel like this. And I had one credit card and I paid it off every month. Also free advice. Um, but being saddled with someone else's debt is an avoidable trap. And so that's why the father sees all of this coming and he, he leans in here. The language in the Hebrew is so strong. Verse three, then do this, my son, and save yourself. It's a trap. Admiral Akbar, your way out of it. Um, save yourself. Thank you for those who got that. Um, this is not talking about salvation, eternal salvation. This is, this is deliverance from a, a temporary situation. We can save ourselves from temporary harm. We cannot save ourselves from eternal harm. There are times when we can pull ourselves out of stupid situations that we've got ourselves into. This is not talking about eternal salvation. Eternal salvation, we are dead, dead in our nature. We are dead in our sins. There is no saving ourselves. Our own choices and our own nature condemn us. And we are, we are hopeless. That is our state. And coming out of that state, we make dumb decisions that we need to be delivered from. And so what he's saying here is interesting. Then do this, my son, and save yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. This is evident within the Hebrew because when you strike a deal, you are striking palms or striking hands with someone else. Now that agreement that you made with your hand, that you made with your mouth, has gotten you into the hand of your neighbor. Now he has control. This is our sinful nature, isn't it? Our hands, our mouths, our hearts, they get us into trap after trap after trap. We fall for every lie. We become slaves to our urges, our desires. We become slaves to these little new shiny things that we think are going to make us happy. And they bring us further and further away from righteousness, and they bring us into the trares and uh, the, the um, snares and traps of this world. So the father says, do this, my son, save yourself, for you've come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten. Um, this is another great Hebrew word. There's no way to translate this in, in one English word. It literally means to be muddy. So what does to be muddy have to do with anything? The, the idea here is, Hasten, go, go quickly and go humbly. That means if you have to run through water and stir up the dirt on the bottom and get covered in mud, if you've got to run through mud, do whatever you can. Don't delay, don't hesitate. Get yourself muddy if you have to so that you can go fix this problem. Get yourself out of this foolish decision if any way possible. And the language gets even stronger in the next line. Go, hasten, plead urgently. This plead urgently is rage. Rage. With all, every fiber of your being, get out of it. Run now. Don't continue down this road. Don't be in the hand of your neighbor or a stranger. A little hit to your pride now is better than extended pain. I don't care if you've got to get dirty head to toe. Get out of this bad situation. Don't be so short-sighted. This is great counsel when it comes to financial decisions, but also spiritual things. If you are in a bad deal, if you have made some agreement that, that, that you shouldn't, an agreement with your eyes, an agreement with, with someone else, get out of it now. Rage against it, fight against it, put it to death. Because it is a trap and it is a snare that keeps pulling more tightly and tightly around your, your neck. And the father continues 
Give your eyes no sleep, your eyelids no slumber. Don't put it off. Don't wait any longer. Don't even go to sleep until you are off the hook. I was thinking about this, the interesting analogy or the, the, the picture of being on the hook. It's a, fishing, it's, a, it's a fishing metaphor. How does a fish get caught? Either that fat, juicy worm that looks so appealing or the, the lure, it's it's the right word. It, it lures them in. It's, it's the shiny new thing, and then, they, and then they bite it, and then they're on the hook. They're actually caught. And what does a fish do when a fish is on the hook? You think a fish takes a nap? You've never seen a fish on a hook take a nap. They fight with every fiber of their being. They are raging against that hook. They want to get off of it. That is what we are to do when we are trapped in sin. We are to do everything we can. Don't get comfortable in it. Don't, don't sleep there. Get off of it. Rage against it. Fight so that you can be free. Save yourself again in verse 5. The hunting imagery continues. Like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter. Again, being burdened is like an animal caught in a trap. They don't think about anything until they escape. But this is a, this is a great picture here because gazelles and birds, you ever walked in the forest? and see a deer, the moment they hear you, when you start walking, the moment that the birds hear you, they are gone. They know humans don't mean anything good. I'm gonna get out of here. They don't waste any time. They don't lay down and take a nap and consider if this is a bad situation or not. They are gone. Here's what the father's saying to the son. Get out of there like a deer or like a bird. This is very, very visual. And if you've been in deep debt, if you've made a foolish deal, and every one of us, if you... I have made more foolish financial decisions than I care to recall. Thankfully, I've only made them once, but each one was a valuable lesson. But if you've been in deep debt, if you're in deep debt now, you know how bad this is. But I know so many people, uh, speaking very practically now, who are in deep financial debt, and they're just kicking back. They're going out to eat every night. I will, I will, I will pay for it later, Sleep, sleeping like a baby. And they're digging themselves further and further into a hole. Get out of it. Do not become a slave to a lender. Do not be slave to your stuff. If you are in debt, you don't need a new TV. If you are in debt, you don't need to be going out to eat all the time. You need to be splurging on, on things. This, these are just wise things because then we end up becoming slaves to our possessions. Um, the hunting imagery continues here. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter like a bird from the hand of the fowler. This imagery continues. The same hand that you used earlier to strike that deal that brought you into the hand of the stranger, now, are you getting the picture yet? You're like a trapped animal. Get out of the hand of the hunter, out of the hand of the fowler, someone who fowls fowl. You know, someone who hunts birds. That's what a fowler is. <laughs> um, do the same. So practically, so I want to give you a picture of what's going on in the proverb before we kind of apply this. So practically, how often are we impatient? How often do we not read the fine print? How often do we just jump at a deal that, that, that sounds good, makes that, make that emotional impulse decision and end up getting trapped? We don't seek counsel. We don't, we don't sleep on it. And how many times we found ourselves in precarious situations. The agreements we make with our hands and our mouths, practically speaking, affect our quality of life. Some people will always be in debt. Some people will always be burdened by their own fleshly desires. Some people will be slaves to lenders the rest of their lives. And it becomes self-inflicted poverty. It's so short-sighted. But in a spiritual sense, especially if we place our hope in things of monetary value. If this is where we find our identity, if this is where we find our, concert, our, um, our security, thinking that quick gain or more stuff will make us happy, we become like the animal in the trap. Um, and the gospel should change our view of wealth completely. Because the things that matter, as we read earlier in Luke 12, don't you think your heavenly Father knows what you need and provides for you the good things of this earth? 
We have this amen, and we have this, 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 this picture now that all of this stuff is passing away. That car you think is so great, that new position you think is so great, the new outfit that you think is going to make you happy, how long does that last? That stuff is passing away. But what he gives us that, that lasts forever, that's what we should hold on to. So the beauty of the gospel, it shows that the things of this earth are going strangely dim. But what really is of value, the things that are value to the Lord, chief among them, his creatures, chief among them, his body, that our possessions, the things that are, that are material, they don't, they don't matter because we have brotherly affection for those who are united in Christ. One of the most beautiful pictures of this is with Paul and Onesimus in uh, Philemon. So if you will turn there, it used to be called Philemon, but it's not how it's pronounced. So Philemon is the smallest book of Paul. So if you go to the New Testament, um, go to the end of Paul's books, and uh, after all of the, the, the T's, it's stuck right in there between Titus and Hebrews. It usually fits on one page in your Bible. Um, but this is what the entire book is about. So here's the situation. If you haven't read the book, if you're not familiar with it, um, when people in the early church came to Christ, there was this real struggle. We read the text to say, that if you're in Christ, you're no longer slave nor, nor free. But Paul gives instructions. If you're a slave, be good to your master. And if you're a master, be good to your slaves. Uh, so slaves are uh, expected to remain in that, in, in that station in life. Well, Onesimus takes off. Uh, we don't know exactly what the situation is, but he owes his master some money. Both are believers, and so Paul writes a letter to Philemon, uh, Onesimus' master. And so here's what he says in verse 17. So if you consider me your partner in Christ, receive him as you would receive me. Notice this idea of, of surety, making a pledge for another. So Proverbs says, don't make a pledge for a stranger. Don't put your, yourself in a place of someone who you won't guarantee. What does Paul do here? If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. Paul says, this is my brother. I'm going to stand in his place. I will make a pledge on his behalf. If he can't pay it, I will, no matter the cost. You've got a blank check from me because this is my brother. Changes what we, the gospel changes what we see as valuable. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. I led you to Christ. I am your father in the faith. But nevertheless, I will show you how much I care for eternal things. My, I would rather see, I would rather be emptied of my bank account and see brothers reconciled than to see this uh, left undone. It's beautiful. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. This is the picture of brotherly love. We are refreshed in Christ. If you are in Christ, he says, you are mine. I have given you the, the heavenly treasury to be yours. Why are you holding on to these, the paltry things of this earth? And Paul gives us this beautiful picture. I will stand in the place of my brother because my brother is of, of more infinitely worth than any, any material thing I can um, gather for myself. Another great example from church history. And um, we like to recommend good books often. And so any of these little nine marks books are, are great. Uh, we're going through the uh, book on, on, on deacons right now with a few of us. And there's a great story in here. You guys have read this. One of the most beautiful stories from church history I've ever heard. And so I want to read it at length. Um, but you'll get the idea. How does our view of what is valuable and uh, what our, our treasure is change in the gospel? So this is all, uh, this chapter is all about examples of faithful deacons and, um, and uh, the differences that they've made in the church throughout history. So this is to uh, AD 258. And a man named Lawrence is one of seven deacons serving in Rome. His task is to oversee the church's money and the distributions to the poor. In August, the news hits. Uh, Decius, uh, he is the um, Roman emperor. His successor, Valerian, has issued a chilling edict. All bishops, priests, deacons must be rounded up and killed. Lawrence is soon taken before the magistrate. 
Here's the offer. Surrender the treasure of the church and you will be freed. The deacon agrees. He only requested three days to retrieve it. Leaving the court, Lawrence wastes no time. Pay attention to the the details here. He entrusts the church's money to save hands and then gathers together the sick, the aged, the poor, the widowed, and the orphaned. At last he returns to the court, pitiful band in tow. Incensed by the commotion, the magistrate demands an explanation. Lawrence responds, sir, I have brought you what you asked for. Then he gestured toward the people he's gathered. He declared, these are the treasured of the church. Subsequently sentenced to a martyr's death, the deacon endures the flames with startling calm, even quipping to his executioners, you may now turn me over, I'm done on this side. <laughs> Love that. The spectacle of Lawrence's profound courage makes a great impression on the people of Rome, leading to many conversions. That is what is valuable in the church. The world can bankrupt us, can seize all of our belongings like they've done to our brothers and sisters in China and Africa, but we have something of value that cannot pass away. We have been given unity in Christ because of Christ, and he is the greatest example of surety. Going back to this idea of giving yourself as a pledge for someone else, we have this in view as Christ gave himself as surety for us. He says, if they can't pay it, I will. I put myself in, on the line for them, and because I know they can't pay it, I'll pay it all. This is what propitiation means. This beautiful theological word that means the full price has been paid. It is his pledge for our pardon. He stands in our place. He gives him his very self. He could have given the entire world as a ransom, and he said he will. I'll give nations in ransom for you. But because I know the only price that will do is myself, I will lay down my life for my sheep. I will be the surety for you, even though you are in great debt that you can never repay. This counsel from father to son in Proverbs is a perfect picture of what you should not do for a stranger, for a sinner. One would scarcely die for a righteous man, but Christ died for the ungodly. He gave himself as surety for us. That's a bad deal, financially speaking. But praise his glorious grace that he did that we might receive the riches of Christ. That we, like Onesimus, ran away and disgraced our master. But our master sought us and bought us, going to the cross for us, that the full price may be paid, that we may no longer be strangers, but brothers, and not just brothers, but fellow heirs, that we might become rich for eternity. And his promises give us assurance because of who guarantees it. Hopefully you're still in Philemon. The next book is Hebrews. Look at Hebrews chapter six. So how can we know that this surety that Christ gave for us gives us assurance? How can we trust it? How can we know this is real because because if someone knows that their sin, have you ever talked to someone about the gospel and they, they know their sin and like, this is too good to be true? How can I know this is for real? Look at chapter six, picking up in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swore, he swore by himself. This promise gives us assurance because of who guarantees it. How is this, tr- this pledge to be trusted? Because God himself guarantees it. God has no higher name by which to swear, so he swears by himself, saying, surely, the same idea of surety, I will bless you and multiply you, this great promise to Abraham. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people 
swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. This is covenant. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this, the sure promises of God, as a sure and steady anchor of our soul. Brothers and sisters, I hope you have this. If you don't cry out to God, But if God who cannot lie promises that my son has paid the debt for you by you putting your faith in him, hold on to it. It is a sure and steady anchor. That anchor that has you tied to shore that no matter how many waves and billows and storms throw you about, you will never be broken free because he will never leave and never forsake you. No one can snatch you out of his hand. Your hand may bring you into all kinds of stupid decisions, but his hand is mighty to save. And no one ever slips out of it. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. His high priestly office is the the constant reminder of the price that was paid for us. He ever lives, lives to intercede. Before the right hand of the Father, our assurance is our king, our priest. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, that's one. Let's go into our second section. Going back to Proverbs. Uh, Definitely changing direction here. Go to the ant, O sluggard. So the first section sets up the second. And the father is teaching the son by scolding the sluggard. Um, begins with go. Number one, this is the, the, the most hated word for the sluggard. Uh, go. The sluggard does not go. The sluggard stays. That's what the sluggard does. Go to the ant and consider. Think about it. Anyone ever watched ants? Ants are fascinating. If you've ever sat... Um, as, as a kid, long enough where you weren't burning them with magnifying glasses. But um, if you ever sat and just watched them scurry and watch how they, 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 they tirelessly, tirelessly work, they are self-motivated, they are, are strong, they're constantly moving, they, they live to work, they're industrious, they're organized, they are determined. And ants don't have to worry about bad loans because each one carries its own weight and more than its own weight. So you've got the ant on one hand, and you've got the sluggard. So you know what a slug is? A sluggard is a human version of a slug. This fat, slimy, lazy thing that doesn't look like it's good for anything. It's slow-moving, it's unmotivated, this unproductive blob like many Americans today. Um, every time I, I see this, I have two pictures in my mind. The uh, people in, in uh, Wally who are fat and they're sitting in front of those little, little, little screens with the, uh, the uh, big super gulp um, and they can only see the screen in front of them. It's sad that that, has become, that, that movie's prophetic and it's become a reality. Um, the other thing I see is Jabba the Hutt, like just, just a sluggard who does not move and um, it's, it's what I see. Um, this is an easy state to get into but a very hard state to get out of. Go to the ant, oh sluggard. Get off your couch and look at that little creature right there. How humbling is that? That as a human being, we have to go learn from one of the smallest creatures in creation. But how wise is that? Go and be wise. That God has created this industrious little creature for us to learn from. And this this ant who has no chief, no officer, no ruler. There's no hierarchical structure as far as ants are concerned. No one has to tell an ant to work. They live to work. They wake up and they, and they work. They are moving all the time. They don't need to be told to go out to work every day. But people, on the other hand, are lazy. And we, let's be honest. If we didn't have bills to pay, if we didn't have a boss telling us to go to work, if we didn't have professors grading us, how hard would we work? How much effort would we, would we put in? 
most of us would be content just sitting around watching TV. Go to the ant, oh sluggard. Work is a good thing. You were designed for it. This is a pre-fall institution. But look at the ant's example. You have never seen a starving ant. There is never an ant who couldn't make their way to a food because they didn't work hard enough. And these ants, they work in and out of season. Verse 8, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. The ant knows the right, um, the right uh, effort for the right action. And um, they're always in the right season. So uh, I recommended the uh, Deacon book. I love to um, reference helpful classic books. This one is an ethical classic. One of my favorites as a kid, The Grasshopper and the Ants. Um, this is one of Aesop's fables. Don't laugh. I love this as a kid. Um, but this is a, has a great uh, ethical lesson. So The Grasshopper and the, and the Ant was written by Aesop a few hundred years after Proverbs. But the idea is the ants um, are working diligently. The ants in, in spring and in summer and in fall, they're planting their, their, their crops and they are, they are harvesting. But the grasshopper, he just wants to play his fiddle all the time. He wants to dance and he wants to sing and he wants to run around. And the ants keep telling him, hey, winter's coming. Winter's coming, but he won't listen. And tries to get the ants to play in his little reindeer games and, you know, all the things that, that, that he wants to do um, until the snow comes. And, uh, you know, he can hide in the summertime because he's green. But when the snow comes, all the green dies out. And now this green grasshopper becomes prey for this, this, this vulture who would love to eat him because he hates the way he plays his fiddle. Um, and so he is hungry he has nothing to show for himself, and he, and, he, and he freezes in the snow. And it must be the ants who come to his rescue. The same proverbial principle applies. Whether you are laying home lazily or you are just having fun, drinking and being merry, and think that winter is never going to come. But the industrious ones are the ones who always have food. The ones who usually have to bail out the ones who are partying all the time. And so the admonition here, how long will you lie there, O oh sluggard? Ouch. How long will you lie there, you big fat slob? That's the, the uh, translation. Um, <laughs> like verse 4, this is excessive sleep that leads to poverty. This is sleeping when you should be working. This is being more concerned with, with rest than, than diligence. And we've got to be honest, this is the temptation of our time. I mean, we've got um, comfortable, uh, you know, graphmatic adjustable beds. We've got sleep numbers. Um, we've got streaming services. We've got everything that our flesh could possibly want. You mean I get to lay here? And someone will bring food to my door, bring my clothes to my door, will bring everything I want to my door. Yep. I never have to leave the house. Our culture, our society is making sluggards by the thousands. But there's also spiritual sluggardness. And some of you need to wake up. Many of you are lazy Christians. Many of you are spiritual sluggards and you need to wake up. Meaning, you are just kind of sleepwalking through life. You have heard the gospel. You may even know Christ. But you produce zero fruit. You look more like a slug than you do an ant. And here, listen. I don't have to point fingers. I don't have to name names. Because if the spirit is, is in you, you will know as soon as I'm speaking. And if this is you, wake up. If you are content just going through the motions and being an unfaithful son or, or, or daughter, Christ has stood in your place and you are content with just laying around. You are an out of shape Christian. You don't realize that you're in a spiritual battle. You're not training yourself for righteousness. You don't know that your master will come home at any time. How do you want him to find you?
When will you arise, O sluggard? Maybe you're not even a Christian at all. Maybe you're going through the motions and think that you are. Let me give you a little litmus test. How often does Christ enter your mind throughout the week? You may sit in here most Sundays, or you may sit in front of YouTube most Sundays. How often does Christ enter your mind during the week? How often do you praise him for your salvation? How often do you think of his word and find counsel, and how often do you find comfort in the fellowship of believers? If the answer is not at all, you may not know him. Wake up. Don't be sluggards in your carnal life, in the flesh, but certainly don't be sluggards in your, in your spiritual life. What is the answer of a sluggard? When are you going to wake up? In a little while. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep. A little slumber. A little folding of the hands. Right, sluggardness never says, hey, sit here and, and, and binge watch ten episodes. It's always a little bit longer. One more. Hit the snooze button so I can sleep a little bit more. And I'm trying to just gain five more minutes, ten more minutes, another hour for my own, for my own comfort as often as, as I can. That's the promise, isn't it? A little more here, a little more there, a little folding of the hands. This in the Hebrew is more picturesque. It's not folding of the hands. It's folding of the hands into the arms. It's this laying position where I'm doing no work, I'm doing nothing right now, bowl of chips right here. That's, that's the, the, the uh, position. A little folding of the hands. I'm getting comfortable, I'm not going anywhere, I've got nothing to do. I am con content in my laziness. And then, poverty will come upon you like a robber. And want like an armed man. Your passivity leads to poverty in this life and in the next. You lay there long enough and you're robbed of energy. You're robbed of money. You're robbed of your physique. A lot of us had COVID. This, this is how I felt. Even like three days, I felt like a sluggard. Like I can't lay here anymore. I can't sit here anymore. I got to get up. I got to go. But how many people go through their life like that? Just speaking practically, how many people go through their, their, their life barely motivating themselves to get up out of bed in the morning? How many people go through that in, in their spiritual life and wonder why they're always scared and wonder why they're always fearful and wonder why it seems like God is so far away, like I've been robbed of my joy? Because you haven't invested any in it to begin with. You've left the door open for your enemy. You've played right into his hand. You said, here I am, I'm sleeping on the couch and I'm not getting up, take all my stuff. That would be foolish in our lives. We don't leave our doors open and tell our enemies to come in. But how often do we do that in our spiritual lives? I'm not gonna put up a fight. I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable here. Whatever I have is yours. That spiritual sluggardness. But this can all be avoided. Kind of... Ending where we began, there's laxity, not thinking or reading the fine print before we agree. That's the first one. And then there's laziness, not being motivated. Both of these lead to a lifetime of indebtedness and slavery to others and our own sin. Whether it's laxity or laziness, going back to 2 Peter 2.19, let's put that up again. They, the false teachers and the false gospels promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves to corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. This applies so much more in the spiritual realm. I don't want us, as the people of God, to be slaves to our sin and slaves to our sluggardness. Notice in this passage that God is not mentioned once. There is no mention of the Lord. There's no mention of spiritual things. But, however, the way that we steward the time and the resources and the gifts that he's given us are such a reflection of how we honor him. Uh, so I want to end with our application in First and Second Thessalonians. So if you'll turn there, please. 
I want you to see all of this, this imagery as warning to the believers. Same thing we're looking at in, in Proverbs. This is very practical for us in this day and in this time. I'm going to read a large section here. This is 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. I'd love to hear pages flipping. It's a beautiful sound. It's right next to hearing saints sing is hearing pages and Bibles flipping. Um, Verse 1, now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need uh, to have anything written to you. Well, what does this have to do with anything? Notice here. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. Here's the modern day sluggard. Who cares about the time? You know, who, who, who cares about the coming of Jesus Christ? This is apostolic preaching. What was their concern? He's coming. He's coming again. He's coming like a thief in the night. Don't believe this promise of you can find security in this world. Don't believe the the promise that you can just kick back and, and be lazy here because he is coming. The master has left us in charge. And he is a good and righteous master. But he is a just master. And those who are found as unfit servants they will find destruction as, picking up again in verse 3, as labor pains come upon them or come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Notice the picture here. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of day. We are not of the night or of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. What does that look like? It looks like every day we wake up and say, Jesus, is it today? Are you coming today? I'm going to work as if you were coming today. Like Luther, you know, I'm going to plant a tree. I'm going to be productive because every day is one day closer to my Savior coming. And we are not sleeping in a spiritual sense. I'm not talking about insomnia. In a spiritual sense, we don't go through life acting like there's not spiritual warfare going on around us, acting like that, that we don't work for eternal treasure. We are not asleep to, the, to God's plan of redemption and Christ's return. For those who sleep, verse 7, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us to wrath, praise the Lord, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the motivation to be awake? What is the motivation to be sober and to be diligent? You have been saved from wrath. Be sober-minded. Don't be like the people who are, who are, who are drunk at night. Don't be like people living in darkness, hiding in the, the, the rock of your own sorrow and in your own self-delusion. If you are in Christ, you have obtained salvation through our Lord who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, different use of awake or asleep, dead or alive, in Christ, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. I want to commend you here, body. This is one of the things I love about this church. So often do I hear people encourage one another in Christ. This is what we do. We are all going to be sluggards. We are all going to be speculators and, and try to get a quick rich, you know, get, get rich quick scheme idea. Um, but we need to encourage one another in this. We need to build each one, one another up. Preach the gospel to each other as you are doing. Here's how we guard against this, brother. I noticed I haven't seen you in a couple weeks. Brother, I noticed you're, you're, you're kind of down. How has your time in the word been? How has your time in, in prayer been? What is the Lord teaching you? Build each other up in this. Remind each other that Christ died for you. You've obtained salvation in his name. You've been saved from wrath. But if you haven't, if you are still thinking that you are the ant who can work hard enough 
to save yourself, you are under wrath. You are as a drunk man in the darkness. You have no hope of finding light. And it is only by Christ. It is only by crying out to him, the one who must stand in your place as a pledge for your very life, and the one who is coming again soon. Because when, when, when he comes again the first time, he came for the promise of peace. The second time he's coming to deal with, to deal with the sin of the world. Either you will be found in him or you'll be found under his wrath. As our first application, second application, we're going to close here in 2 Thessalonians 3. Move a couple pages forward. Verses 6 through 12. Um, two very, pra- two very um, practical books, even though there's a lot of eschatological imagery. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. Now we commend you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. And now, in according with the tradition that you receive from us, this is very practical. Encourage one another in what you have in Christ, but also, we need to guard each other against this this laziness. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. This is Peter speaking to the apostles here. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. Even though the apostles could have said, "You, you owe us. Even the the, the apostles didn't expect anything for free. Even they worked. Paul, as the greatest theologian that has ever existed, Paul worked as a tent maker. Paul stuck needles in his his hands, not on purpose, but he's sewing tents together. He worked tirelessly, and so so did Peter. They toiled and labored. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. In this, brothers and sisters, we should be ants. We must each carry our own weight and each are given different measures. But we must be diligent in our work. And when we falter, others will pick us up and encourage us. But if we are diligent, we'll be there to pick others up. But if we're so short-sighted and so concerned about ourselves, how can we care for our brother? How can we care for our sister? So it was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we are with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Amen. Especially in 2022. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. There is a difference. Now such persons we command and encourage you in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. We of all people should be joyful, energetic workers. We don't work to be saved. We work because we are saved. There's a, there's a big difference. Christ's work, his active work on earth, his passive work on the cross was done for us. Now we work out of his work. We work because all the work that needed to be done for eternity was done for us. How could we not be diligent workers now? How could we not be the employee of the month? How could we not be the most reliable, the most hardworking person at our jobs? How could we not be shining examples? Why are you such a hard worker? Why are you so trustworthy? How come you're not stealing and lying like everybody else? Because my Savior worked for me. Because my Savior went, went before me. I stand in him. And Peter says, or Paul says, we, now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our encouragement. What if Christ was lazy? What if Christ says, no, I prefer the comfort of my throne of glory to walking around with you scrubs? What if Christ didn't work on our behalf? How do we respond to the greatest gift we've ever been given? How do we respond for him saying, I stand in your place. I pledge myself for your life. Praise God for his grace. Praise God for his mercy. Praise God for sending his son to die for us. 
When we work carnally and spiritually, we work in Christ, to Christ, and for Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you, we praise you. You are a great and awesome God. You are perfect in all of your ways. Your plan of redemption is awesome. Who can understand it? That you would save sinners like us. That our Savior would stand in our place. That he would guarantee our lives at the cost of his. That we might stand with him. That we might live with him. That we might reign with him. What a beautiful picture of your love for us, of your mercy toward wretched sinners. Lord, if it were up to us, we would waste away everything you've given us. All of our time, all of our money, all of our talents, we would blow it all. But may we be faithful servants because of our suffering servant who went before us. And it is in his name we pray, amen.